Wolf and Zoe. All right, man. Welcome to Pro Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 521. It's me and Jason today, and Jason's been wanting to do this for a long time. And I finally said, all right, write it up. So Jason did the research on this. We're going to do Mystery Babylon. Jason will tell you where it comes from, but I think a lot of it's lifted from the work of Bill Cooper. Interestingly enough, Cooper was quite a guy. Fortune has a lot to say about Cooper because Fortune knows some things. And I've never heard him say anything, but Cooper was on the money. Not only that, he was doing a show like what, Jason, five, five times a week. This man did a show. Is that right? I'm fairly certain. Yeah. So fortunes commented on that. Can you imagine like Jason and I do this twice a week and it's full time just to pull two well-researched show. This man was doing it basically every day and it's amazing. And he was one of the first people to stand up against uh, what was going on in the world. And I think a lot of people would tell you it cost him his life at the end of the day. Uh, He was shot down in his own front yard. But anything you want to add to that, Jason? Right. He did these shows live. He was pulling from a lot of books. And uh, a huge part of this was pretty much pre-internet or as the internet was getting started. So obviously he didn't have the resources. I mean, this sort of thing is so much easier to do today. Of course, they're trying to put their foot down on that as well. But it's very admirable just how much work that he was able to pull off in the time period that he did. So early on, I had some problems with Cooper. I was aware of him. But later on, when I was introduced, uh, his stance on aliens was one of the things that I ran into and I didn't like it. But in defense of Cooper, he later realized that he was being set up to give misinformation about aliens and he backtracked and he did it in public and he did it on the air. And I'll tell you, it's one of the hardest things when you first start doing this to have to go on the air and say, I blew it. Very few people are willing to do it. And what I find is after you do do it, because I've done it, it's actually a good thing to be able to do because you don't have to remember anything, right? You've, you've settled it. You know, you made a mistake. You said, my bad, I settled it. Well, he did that in in public with the alien thing. You want to add anything about that, Jason? Basically, he had access to things that led him to believe uh, aliens were real. And he later came to comprehend that he'd been exposed to things. So he would say that very thing. Did I get that right? Yeah. When he was working for the Office of Naval Intelligence, he saw documents and he went and talked about it later on in life after he was he was out of that because that was his job in the early 70s. And he came to the conclusion after a little while that he was being used and it really made him angry. And he didn't just say it once on the air. He repeatedly made the point that this is a setup for the whole fake alien invasion thing because he's the first person that I had ever heard talking about that. There's a couple things that are picking up in our world right now, and we've just recently done an episode. It's the alien agenda, as I call it. That's been queuing up for well over a year, maybe two, and it's coming to fever pitch. They're doing everything they can to get people to believe in the possibility of aliens. And I suspect what they're doing is they're gauging what happens online, and then they're going to make a decision of whether they run with that option or not. The other one is AI is sentient. AI will never be sentient. AI will never understand, comprehend, be alive in any way like we are. Doesn't mean that it can't be autonomous. Doesn't mean that it can't do horrific damage. It can, but at no point 
Will it be so-called alive? Before we jump into the mystery of Babylon, I'll say one thing. Having had access to someone like Fortune, mad props to what Cooper did, because what Fortune knows and what Fortune is aware of and things he's had access to, I don't think he gives props to anyone that I'm aware of at the level he gives props to Cooper. And that means something, at least to me. Anyhow, Jason, you want to jump in? So, yes, let's give thanks to Bill Cooper for his many years of dedicated work. He pulled aside a lot of the veils that are placed upon us, the profane, if you will, from the day that we're born to the day that we leave this physical existence. And most of the work in this episode, and if we do any more, will be pulled from his 40-some-odd episodes that he called the Mystery Babylon series. But I did also look at some other sources. One thing that gets me down about this is I wish he would have been more careful. He's not a stupid man. This was a very, very smart man. Apparently, he made up his mind that he would put his life on the line, and I wish he hadn't have done that. He could be alive right now had he used his brains and his wit to avoid trouble, and that's not the way this went. But anyhow, let's jump in. What is a mystery school? By definition, A mystery school is a body of initiates who have dedicated themselves to preserving, protecting, and perpetuating the mystery teachings. Throughout the ages, the mystery schools have hidden in plain sight. They have built noble temples all over the world and provided services both to the public and behind closed doors for only those who have eyes to see and those who have ears to hear. Today, many secret societies or orders could be considered a mystery school, such as the Order of the Quest, Freemasonry, the Ancient Order of the Rosen Cross, the Knights Templar, the Sovereign and Military Order of the Knights of Malta, the Order of St. John of Jerusalem, the Priory Diceon, the Thule Society, or sometimes known as the Thule Society, the Skull and Crossbones, the Russell Trust, the Jason Society, the Squirrel and Key, and of course, the mysterious Illuminati. They use many signs and symbols, and some of these are used in places that you may suspect, such as international socialism and communism. You know, one of the the side effects of all these secret societies is the queue up for this is conspiracy. You guys are talking about this, your conspiracy. On the face of it, uh, it labels the person diving into it as a conspiracy theorist, which is correct. The real conspiracy is what they're talking about. But the shame is, is that that veils the conversation into questionable, you know, it's, it becomes questionable. And the real shame is things that we should all be aware of, like shapes, geometry. These are important. They all have an energy. They all have a vibration. All of this tends to get swept under the rug as questionable because of the genius way that the secret societies have covered themselves uh, with accusations to the general public who try to look into things. Another term you will hear in reference to the mystery schools is that of Mystery Babylon, which takes its name from Revelations 17, 3-6. This scripture states, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, 
Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots, and Abominations of the Earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. You start getting into the book of Revelations, you're going to have a lot of strong opinions from a lot of individuals. Uh, way back, some 15 years or more now, I had begun to realize that it appeared that the British Royal Coat of Arms appeared to have some semblance of parity with the book of Revelation. And as I began to look at it, I thought there was something to it, but simply I didn't have the time or the inclination to dive into the level it would take to comprehend all this. And actually, Jason, I'm wondering if anyone has ever done that. But as we get in, the book of Revelations, you know, what came first? Was this written in the way we think? Was it written as a control mechanism? A lot of strong opinions. But as you can see, Cooper's going to tie it to the mystery of Babylon from the opening, what is it, 17, 3 through 6. The teachings of the mysteries can be considered to begin with mankind before he was mankind, for the adepts of the mystery schools do not seem to believe that man was created as he is by God, especially the Christian God, but that he evolved and was once a lower being, more akin to an animal. This, of course, works with the mainstream theory of evolution, something that would be heavily pushed by those in the outer rings of scientific authority and power. The ape men would have lived in an animalistic state, existing in both fear and bliss, drinking at watering holes and scrounging for food with the other beasts that roam the earth and living in caves at night, huddling together for what safety they could get by their numbers. The darkness would have been feared by these beings, for the darkness contained the unknown, where death could be around the next branch or bush. Only with the coming of the warm light of the next morning could ape men hope to feel some sense of security. So this is the underlying idea of one of the manipulations that gets used on us now. Uh, animals, as they're described here, are reactionary, right? They don't generally plan ahead too much. Mostly, uh, I heard something, now I got to run for my life. It's a reactionary lifestyle for many animals most of the time. Uh, that's where we differ. We don't have to live that way. But I've got to ask you, Jason, do you think this is a cover story or do you think that these secret societies really think uh, that we were ape men? I think that they do lean more towards scientific aspects of things as opposed to a god origin, a godly origin, just because they think that they're going to become god. So I don't think they necessarily would believe in an almighty being. Any otherwise, what would be the point of trying to fight against an almighty being? How can you defeat something that's all-powerful? Good point. I've always wondered if this part of the narrative, this ape-man narrative, is the source of, oh, aliens edited our DNA back in the day, uh, and whether that was put there purposefully and then later expounded on. There's a lot of people still very interested in the idea of, oh, we used to be animals and someone edited our DNA. I wonder if that's going to come to the fore if the alien agenda gets used. Uh, but I've always kind of felt like that was attached to this narrative. To be honest, though, it's really hard to say because I don't think any of them are coming out to just openly admit what exactly they think and believe. Well, there's a whole other narrative that I'm not going to get into, and that's the idea of the chimera. And there are all kinds of very creepy accounts 
tied to the Atlantis idea. And while I do accept there is something to the Atlantis idea, the things that I have been told about chimeras, I mean, it's pretty freaking sickening uh, if something like that happened in the world. And I think we're kind of at a point where we recognize that it's probably possible that two animals could be combined. Um, we've seen some pretty horrific things, even in our time, but let's keep pushing here. So if the picture we just painted sounds familiar, it's because that it has come right out of the opening scenes of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. We'll get back to that in a few moments. 2001 A Space Odyssey came across as a lot of different things to a lot of different people, most especially upon its release in 1968. Many considered it an acid flick due to the prevalence of psychedelic culture permeating so much of mainstream media in the late 1960s. 2001 A Space Odyssey is often said to be one of the greatest films of all time, and its director, Stanley Kubrick, considered one of the greatest directors of all time, and with good reason. This film would most definitely influence later directors, most especially one George Lucas. This film was a collaborative effort between Stanley Kubrick and science fiction and futurist author Arthur C. Clarke. There are several significant differences between the novel and the film, but one that has major symbolical meaning is that in the film, the discovery is heading to Jupiter. In the novel, although it was originally heading to Jupiter, the discovery mission is redirected to Iapetus, a moon of Saturn. So from a cult standpoint, this is a really big deal, right? If it's Saturn, from an occult point of view, it's going to mean one thing. But let's back off and just take a look at the movie. In the so-called truther community, I don't think a lot of people really think about what a big deal the movie 2001 is. First of all, it's about space. It gets released in 68. In a short period of time later, they're going to show the whole world that we went to the moon. And that's a hoax. To me, it's a demonstrable hoax. I don't think it's arguable, even though it does get argued. I think it could be demonstrated by sane minds all day long that this is one of the biggest hoaxes in the entirety of modern history. Moreover, not only is this echoing and setting in place the prepping or the initiation of human minds into this big fake thing that's about to happen, they got the balls to put the year 2001. Well, we all know what happened in 2001, so it's going to be tied to that. And that, from my point of view, is when all this operational stuff that is seeking to control the entire world goes operational in plain view because they feel like they're too big to fail. But to come back to 2001, for those of us who were there, most of us were, do you remember how the millennium was celebrated in the year 2000? This was made fun of in a Seinfeld episode, by the way showing how kind of stupid the masses are because simple math would show you that the millennium is not in 2000 because there is no year zero. The millennium is in 2001. So the whole 9-11 thing occurs on the millennium switch. Here's the movie echoing not only the date, but pre-echoing the other hoax, the moon landing. There's quite a bit wrapped up in what went on here. And you know, we could take the steps further. Here's Hollywood involved in world events again, and on and on we go. I don't think we're going to touch on uh, Kubrick and The Shining and all the things that were claimed uh, about how Kubrick felt about being involved in this, but I don't think there's any splitting hairs here. He helped fashion and deliver 
the preemptory initiatory mind warping that was required for two of the biggest hoaxes to follow, 9-11 and the moon landing. Getting back to the opening of the film, the ape men would come across an object, a black stone-like slab that in the story's context would be called the monolith. There would end up being several of these in the initial story and many more in the following sequels. The monoliths are a sort of artificially intelligent and self-sufficient computer system, with each one being programmed to complete a specific task by the story's mysterious aliens called the Firstborn, but you only find that out in the novel. The first monolith we see unleashes a generative force when one of the ape men touches its surface, which causes an evolutionary process of sorts to occur to this being, and the ape man is now capable of using tools to commit violence, forever changing the path of humanity. It could be said that with the advent of this knowledge, man fell from grace before he even was man. This first ape man could be called the first priest of the mystery religion. The monolith could be said to be a symbolical reference to the Egyptian obelisk, which normally represents the penis of Osiris. The book and film would, of course, go on to show humanity in the far future, not having died off from the starvation and constant life-threatening situations, which had to be dealt with every single day. All right, there's a few things going on here. I'll just zero in on the monolith. Is everyone aware that at ground zero... Uh, is the Millennium Hotel, which used to be openly admitted on their website, was built from the measurements of the monolith. So there is a building at Ground Zero, uh, basically a replica of the black monolith from a freaking movie that could see was line of sight to what happened in New York on 9-11. Hoffman, Michael Hoffman, who's been a guest here, wrote a book, which is a really good one. I don't I can never remember the title of it. I'll, I'll get it. We'll pause here in a second and I'll get the title. Or Rose, if you can tell me the title to Hoffman's book. He covers the monolith showing up right before all this happens and it's not covered in the news. And Hoffman covers this in his book. And then, of course, and I don't know whatever came of this, Jason, you, you're more aware of events than I am. You know, when the monolith showed up and where was it? Utah? Somewhere, you know what I'm talking about? The modern monolith that just showed up somewhere. Yeah, the art sculpture thingy. Yeah, did anything ever come of that? Because that begins to show up as kind of a meme, clearly leveraging off what we're talking about. Do you know anything about where that's gone? Just that people figured out where it came from. It was some kind of art thing. Yeah, there were, there were a bunch all over the world, though, I thought. Yeah, I think there was more than one. Anyhow, we'll keep moving. Rose, thank you. The book is called by Michael Hoffman, and this is a must-read, by the way. This is one of the must-reads. Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. I don't know why I can't remember the name of that book. But he covers what should have been covered everywhere, and the monolith shows up at a very key moment, which is in that book. Now, what does this have to do with the mystery schools? To the adepts of the mystery schools, they may have seen this film and come away with a very different interpretation than the surface narrative. One of them might say that this film demonstrates the story of the entire human race according to the history of the mystery religion of ancient Babylon. Everything in the film would be a symbol for something else. The film opens with the sun eclipsed, then rising from behind the moon, a new day dawning, if you will. This could be said to signify the creation of the universe and of the world. The film labels the next scene as the dawn of man, 
It shows the monolith from the ground up with the rising sun above it and a crescent moon above, all in a perfect line, in astronomical alignment. As the light from the sun spills across the edge of the moon, it can be said that it takes the shape of the boat of Isis and the symbology of Osiris riding across the heavens upon that boat. The world is shown as being a pretty barren place. So let me try to reframe this. From my point of view, what's actually going on here is people have put in some clever imagery that the average man or woman is never going to comprehend why they did it other than they know it's a cult. What's going on here is they're showing you that the sun and the moon and the sky clock mark ages. What they're showing you is that they know what the ages are. Eclipses are key in knowing the age change. And when you begin to see the game that was played with the millennium, right, everyone openly celebrates 2000 and are led to do so. Meanwhile, the most popular show in America, maybe the world, Seinfeld, is making fun of everyone because they're not getting the year right. Then the next year, a world-changing event is done on the actual millennium. Meanwhile, nobody's quite aware of the importance of eclipses and the sky clock. In other words, while I sit here and come on this podcast, still trying to demonstrate some meaningful way of showing that the age is in fact changed, they know. They know, and not only do they know, they have an idea of what should happen with these era shifts. To me, Jason, that is the big part of what's being buried here. The eclipse is showing that now it's a new age. Now something entirely new is going to develop. The sun is shown sinking deeper into the afternoon, and we see the emergence of animal life taking the form of birds and animals. We are then shown primitive man in the form of an ape mingling amongst the animals, neither harming the other, living in a state of innocence. And you saw man only eating plants and roots. You are shown that even when the animals and early man were in competition for what little food there was, no one was injured or getting hurt, but there was a display of waving of arms with yelling and grunting until one or the other moved away. The significance of this could be said to be the age of innocence, when man lived in the Garden of Eden, if you will. As the sun progressed farther toward the west, we see man begin to retreat into the womb, the cave, and is shown to be evolving to the point where he could think. Then toward the next dawn, you hear the humming of bees, many, many bees. The beehive, as well as bees themselves, is a prominent symbol in the mystery schools. It signifies societal cohesion and industry, industry meaning working together in a societal form. As the sun began to rise again in the east, signifying the dawn of the new man, the audience beheld an obelisk, a monolith in front of the cave, or the womb, from which the apes emerged, and it appeared that the humming of the bees was emanating from this block of stone. You then see the apes milling about in great excitement, one encouraging another, signifying Adam and Eve, the one encouraging was the symbol of Eve, the one being encouraged was Adam, until he actually reached out and touched the face of the stone. He was then imparted with intellect. 2001 A Space Odyssey could be said to be a message from those who rule to all of the initiates of the world. That message was that the new age is now dawning. If true, this certainly calls into question just who Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke really were. 
I didn't know there was any question. I know who the hell they were. I know what they've participated in. And this is a good point that you've made here, Jason. So we have these beings living together in harmony. Someone touches the monolith, which then changes everything. In other words, the the monolith changes everything from peaceful to violence, eating each other, fighting and warfare. How is that any difference from what the news does right now, right? If there was no news, how many wars or the idea of war or violence, how much of that would be diminished in our world? I I would estimate significantly, like 90 some percent. And I'm guessing, of course, but to get back to the bees, there's a lot more to the bees than most people know. And this is part of what secret societies do. They're not sharing. First of all, there's going to be the queen idea in bees. Like you can go back and look at some of the coats of arms. I don't remember if Napoleon was one, but the bee symbol would come up. Well, there's royalty in the bee, but here's really the big thing about bees. Well, let's let's go back and talk about Derek Condit for a second. He had brought up that I said, science says a bumblebee shouldn't be able to, to fly, which is ridiculous on the face of it. Science, what are you saying? The bee flies. We can see it flies. Why are you saying a ridiculous thing? In other words, what you're saying is science is wrong and we can't figure out why science is wrong. What Condit offered was the vibration rate made the bee lighter than air. So there's that special aspect of a bee. But to go further, and I've talked about this before, you can go look up the hornet attacking a bee colony, a Japanese giant hornet. If you pay attention, you will begin to realize that the queen is communicating with the entirety of the hive telepathically. The hornet is sitting there. They're all in an upheaval, but nothing's happening. And then the hornet bites off the head of one bee and everything flips on a dime. The command was given. One of ours has been killed. Attack. But they don't just attack. They attack in a very specific way that requires the entire group. The queen informs them somehow, telepathically or however that works, fourth dimensionally, I think is what most people in the know would describe it as. And they bundle on and they vibrate. What we're told is the bees can tolerate a couple degrees more in heat than the hornet. They ball up on it because of the fourth dimensional communication that went to the entire hive. So think about all these things that are associated. And then when you wonder why would a secret society be so interested in bees, there's a lot going on there. And I know I kind of wandered from the main point, Jason. It is significant to consider that man willingly built the computer HAL, the computer system which had an artificial intelligence that was capable of communicating with the astronauts in the story. But they had forgotten to put a switch in the machine where HAL could be turned off at will. The results in the story because of this are, of course, quite disastrous. How could also be seen as a symbol for many of the horrors that man has created and unleashed upon the world. This is also another good time to point out that the military-industrial complex is almost certainly many years ahead, technologically speaking, than anything we might see and be able to use in our daily lives, as nifty as such toys can be. I would go a step further. Chat GPT is like less than kindergarten to what's available out there. And not only that, if you want to be logical about what you can know about AI is that it never stops. I'll just say the word learning. I have real problems with this idea of trying to convince you that AI is alive when it's not. 
So I'll use the word learning. Every moment it's doing something, it's learning. So in other words, the first day ChatGPT was introduced, it is not the same tool or code as it was on that particular day. But here's another thing where this movie is warping minds. Oh, don't piss off Hal. Talk to him very gently. Even in the follow-up film, 2010, which has some very important things to say, and by the way, is actually the better movie from my point of view. Uh, the first movie is almost impossible to sit through, shot beautifully. But even in that movie, oh, you can't just tell Hal to do what you want. He's not really a tool. He's alive. So you have to be worried about his feelings and how he's going to respond to what you say. They're all this time ago. They're already queuing up the situation we're facing with AI now as they try to convince you it's alive. I, I didn't say that very well. You see where I'm going there, Jason? All this time ago, they're acting like the feelings of a freaking string of code matters. Well, here's the thing. Arthur C. Clarke wrote into the sequels that he is alive. And toward the end, Dave Bowman and Hal actually merge. Does this concept sound familiar? There you go. Good point. You know this material way, way better than I do. And you're, you're building the bridge to transhumanism, which I completely overlooked. So well done. At the end of the film, we see the remaining astronaut, Dave Bowman, enter the monolith, which is a stargate. He ends up in a place where he sees aspects of his life, seeing the monolith for the final time, and becoming an evolved being, a fetus enclosed in light, who returns to Earth. The overall message that could be taken away from the film is this. The new man will go into the future, and the rest of us will perish. We, meaning the profane, will not be allowed into the future. If we are, it will be as slave labor until we were no longer useful, and then we will simply be exterminated. The message to the vast army of initiates, the mystery school, was that we are on the threshold of the new age, and into this new age will march only one kind of man. It is the new man, the illumined man, the man that is able to make the evolutionary jump to no more war, no more rape, no more pillage, to the level in the mystery school known as 666. It is the number of a man. It is the illumined man to the mystery schools. For Christians, it could be called the symbol, the mark of the beast, the indication that the Antichrist has arrived, and the beginning of the time predicted in the book of Revelation known as the Tribulation. And wouldn't it be ironic and yet completely acceptable that a secret society would give the portrayal to the majority of the world that what they think is a good thing, triple six, is actually a bad thing? Sound like something they might do, but think about what's just been laid down here. No more rape, no more pillage. Well, I got news for you. The people running this show keep this stuff alive and they keep it real and they keep that egregore in reality in this world through their movies, through their constant reporting of hell. So it's a bit much to swallow when they're trying to say we need to get to a world with the new man while they keep this alive. But there's always the angle that, yeah, we're putting this out there. And if you're too stupid to get beyond this, then you need to go. But there was one part of this. Oh, uh, the new age. Now, Jason and I are, are about to hopefully interview a gentleman who has the cultural connection to the Yugas because he grew up in India. He is going to put forward, I think, 
at least that's the impression I got from the, the, the meeting we had, that the actual age change into the ascending uh, yuga away from the dark age is actually going to firmly occur on the year 2025. Now, if that was true, that would be a hell of a thing because of all the kind of new world order things that are going on that are going to be completed and in place by the year 2025. Anyhow, there's all that, Jason. Before we go any further, Bill Cooper used to say that in the religion of the mystery schools, they believed that man was held prisoner in the Garden of Eden by an unjust and vindictive God, and that man was not told by this unjust and vindictive God that he could have the same powers. And man was set free from the bonds of ignorance by Lucifer through his agent Satan, and many believe that the two are the same, and that's okay because maybe they are, and that through the gift of intellect, man himself will become God. All right. I mean, come on, man. I don't even know how to how to address this. So you're going to say that God didn't tell you the truth, that hid things from you to prevent you from getting all your power. What the hell are the secret societies doing? So you want to say this is true, then lay down what you got that you know this is true. What's your evidence? Because if you don't share it, then you're doing the exact same thing that you're accusing God of having done in the first place to prevent human beings from knowing they could advance spiritually to be God-like. And by the way, if Lucifer is the big savior, then why has the message, it's like the 666 thing, then why does everyone think negatively? Well, they think negatively because of all the press that's been created by the centers of power all the movies, all the media, all the corporate religions. So, I mean, what do you think here, Jason? They're, they're doing the very thing they're complaining about, right? Well, let's boil that down. The elite are a bunch of hypocrites, and a lot of the problems in the world exist because they inflict enforced scarcity onto the entirety of the world. Exactly. They're creating the bad war all the time, rape all the time, scarcity all the time, violence all the time. Uh, they're doing it with their control of media and worldwide reach and communications. But here, straight from the horse's mouth, oh, well, God was vindictive and he didn't, he, he kept secrets from us. Well, guess what? That's what secret societies do as their modus operandi. So it's all just a bit much. If you want to prove, if you want to have the idea that Lucifer was actually like Prometheus, you know, he took pity on human beings and he did something beneficial, fine, lay it down, throw it on the table. What do you got? You're where I am, Jason. It's just, there is no reasonable door that we can go through. Everything's twisted here. They're complaining about a situation and then they're causing the very same situation in a different way. Now you will hear the modern day transhumanists reflect this attitude though. I don't know if it's verbatim, but they definitely say things along the lines of, we are going to be God, and if you don't like that, you can get out of our way. Yeah, and, and I think that that is an intention. I think the AI, I think the combining of computing power with the human being, but to me, that's a trade-off. You're handing off your spiritual ladder, from my point of view, if you want to go down that road. And do we know that a computer can do things much more quickly than I can? Well, yeah, right now, but I'll tell you what. I have been aware of accounts of people who reach hugely successful spiritual levels and what it's claimed they could do was amazing. But more than anything, 
these mundane needs to calculate this or be able to figure out that doesn't matter anymore because they're above it. So it almost feels like the whole fight here is to be the king of a material world when the spiritual path put before all of us is to get beyond the material world. But this Lucifer thing, the light bringer, uh, whatever you want to think about it, I have seen so many accounts. The one that always sticks in my mind is I think the current wife of David Gilmore is in an interview where she flat out states why Lucifer is great or why they think he is great. First time this came into my awareness, I thought, well, that's the Prometheus story. The Prometheus story is basically, well, the gods were treating humans like crap. They were suffering. And Prometheus said, oh, these poor human beings, I'm going to help them. I'm going to give them fire. And the God said, don't you dare. You're not allowed to. Don't do it. And he did it anyhow. And then he paid one hell of a price for having done it. To me, that is the exact same idea as how the so-called elites view Lucifer. But again, what do you got? Lay it on the table. Why are you hiding it? I guess. It seems fair to say that many believe that Lucifer and Satan are the same entities, and many people believe that they're totally different entities, and that Satan is evil and Lucifer is not. According to the Bible, Lucifer rebelled against God and was expelled from heaven, being flung to the earth to be the master of the material world, the master of the earth. If Lucifer is actually Satan, it is not openly stated how this transformation would have taken place. Either way, ancient man seems to have witnessed something that was described in oral history and writings. It could possibly be called the first UFO sighting in the history of the world. Isaiah 14.12 states, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning star? Lucifer was called the son of the morning star, and he was also called the morning star. There's a great mystery here because Christ also called himself the morning star. It has been suggested that those initiates in the mystery schools view Christ and Lucifer as the same being. Obviously, this is not what Christians believe. All right. This comes to a point where I don't ever think you're going to unravel this as it's written because I think you have to be initiated. And I think what the Reverend Robert Taylor comes to the fore, where he uses the example of uh, one book of the Bible, Hebrews is the book, and says you can't possibly understand this unless you're initiated. But, you know, okay, the morning star, that's typically Venus. But you see, Venus is also the evening star. So clearly, to use these allegories or metaphors or whatever they are, you would have to be shown in some way that's meaningful. By the way, do you know how uh, how Cooper felt about this? Because from the things I've looked at, I would say the majority of the writings that I'm familiar with view Satan and Lucifer as two separate things. He was a Christian by his own admittance, but not any sort of denominational Christian. It can be said that ancient man's greatest enemy to be constantly feared was the darkness of night, with all the unknown dangers that came with it. And simply stated, man's first enemy was darkness. Understanding this, one can easily see why the greatest and most trustworthy friend that the human race could ever have at that time was, by far, heaven's greatest gift to the world, that glorious rising orb of day that we call the sun. And this was the beginning of the battle between light and darkness. It was man's first understanding of the birth, the death, and the rebirth of a deity. For the sun rose, was born in the morning 
traveled across the heavens, where it reached its most powerful point, the zenith, which can help explain why so many things occur at noon or near noon, and then, signifying old age and the end of its life, sank into the west and then died. Man would then be subjected to the dangers of the long cold of the night until the sun, which could be thought of as God, was reborn the next morning. Man would have noticed the moon as well, which rose, lived a different life than the sun, and then set and died, and also being reborn again. The sun, because of its brilliance, became the master or the greatest deity, and the moon took on the feminine aspect, because the moon reflected the light of her master. Sweeping aside all the argument that will follow such a statement as these, the sun is, in fact, the biggest deal in our world, and we could ask one simple question— why is there a nighttime? Why isn't it just light all the time? And I think the answer to that question underscores what we're doing here. We seem to be learning. We seem to have to grow up in a very quick and sometimes brutal way here. And I think the sun itself kind of demonstrates that when we begin to think, why is half of our time here in darkness? Every, or at least nearly every, ancient culture and nation on the earth seems to have used the sun as the most logically appropriate symbol to represent the glory of the unseen creator of the heavens. The sun was not necessarily God himself, but a representation of God. The Old Testament, Psalms 19, verse 1, states, The heavens are declaring the glory of God, as well as Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, The sun of righteousness will arise. The ancient peoples reasoned that no one on earth could ever lay claim of ownership to the great orb of day. It must belong to the unseen creator of the universe. Figuratively speaking, it is not man's sun, but God's sun. Truly, it can be said that God's sun, S-U-N, or sun, S-O-N, was the light of the world. Since energy from the sun gives us life, and we sustain our very existence by taking energy in from our food coming directly from God's sun, the sun must give up its life-supporting energy so that we may continue to live. God's sun, S-U-N, gives us his life for us to live. All right, so now we're stepping over into the more astro-theological things that are put forward, uh, which almost always starts a fight with people who consider themselves Christian and are interested in the Bible. And this is where the shame occurs. Uh, we need to learn how to share the ideas back and forth and quit being offended by it, basically. You can't really argue with, in actuality, the sun is the light of this world. And you can't really argue that in scripture, it's going to say what it says in scripture. But to come to the idea that the sun is God, they had to work at it in Rome through the use of Mithras. What they had to do was get everybody to forget about all the other things we can see, all the other luminaries, all the stars, all these other things. So to get to the point where you're saying God is the sun, uh, you're forgetting quite a bit of creation that we can see just to make the obvious point. So this is why I thought it was important to lay out Freemasonry first, because as we showed, and really there's no arguing this, it's all about the sky clock. That's what all their symbols are. It's all about the sun and all that we can see in the sky. It is astrotheology. 
It's what it's all about. And it's always been about that. It will always be about it. Why? Because the world works how the world works. And at the base of how the world works is there's this creation that we live in and it provides everything we need. The perversion of how we live now starts to come in uh, because now you pay for everything and somebody owns everything. There's where the perversity starts to come into things. Because if I walk out into the hills somewhere, can I get free sunlight? Yes. Can I go have a free drink of water? Yes. Can I go grab that food I see over there? Uh, Yes. And so you see the kind of duality of what's going on here. But the sky clock is, in fact, everything. At nighttime, we're in the darkness. In the morning, the sun's going to rise. When the sun has risen, we can do all these other things now, including do things like grow food. But there's more. The sun at sunrise is not the sun at noon, is not the sun at sunset. There's the kind of micro, blow that open to a year. The sun in June is not the sun in December. Blow that open to the real macro. The age of whatever we were just in is not the age that we are going into. And to foundationally comprehend all these things in the course of a day lets me know what I can do. Well, okay, I know where the sun is right now, and I know it's going to be snowing. Limits what I can do. Or the opposite, it's summertime. I can grow things. I can go swimming. I can fish. Like you know, To comprehend what the sky clock is doing is to comprehend what's possible for us to do here. And that is the micro of the macro. So you can blow it open to a year or you can blow it open to thousands of years. And these secret societies appear to have never lost or at least partially never lost what this means. And that gives them a huge advantage because if you know where the age change is, you know something significant. If you know something about what the age means, then you know potentially the things that are likely going to occur. And to me, What it feels like right now is we're leaving what has been called the Dark Age or the Kali Yuga in some parts of the world, and the powers that be are trying to extend that darkness for a little while longer until they can get total control. But there's also another meme going on um, that it's the end of the world. That's been coming at us hot and heavy for about, I don't know, 10 years out of Hollywood and other places. Anyhow, Jason. So we're coming up on the top of the hour here, but there's something about these ages as far as the astrological side of it is concerned that seems to be incredibly important to the elite, to these mystery school people, because the religious aspects of what the people would be worshiping seem to change with the ages throughout recorded history. Well, even if we just look at what the people in and about the area of India have said of what they call the yugas. Other people will call it an age. There's versions of this in every old culture. They will say things like in the golden age, your mental ability is a hundred percent. Well, that's a pretty big statement. What could society do with a hundred percent of their brain capacity? And there's different ways of saying that they will claim that in a golden age, people are much bigger. 20 feet, 30 feet, they will claim, I mean, there's all these claims of what it means to be in another age. Even if those were exaggerated, I think it's pretty clear that we are in a cyclical way of living and that we should be improving, right? And by the way, that's a big part of what movies and media news do to us. They try to prevent us 
from growing. They try to keep us down with violence and fear and all these things it does. But to know when the age changes and to know something about what the age you are going into is, is about as big an advantage as you could ever hope for, I would estimate. All right. Well, I think we're there, Jason. Anything you want to add? So obviously we're going to keep breaking down what a lot of these mystery schools seem to look at, but the Freemasonry thing showed a lot of the way they look at things. Everything comes back to the sky clock and the importance of how these things can reflect on the life of man, I guess you could say. But I think that very early on, these secret societies were keeping a lot of this knowledge to themselves, being able to calculate astrological things they kept from the common man. And they're still doing things like that to today. I mean, it's pretty obvious, I think. I think they truly believe in what is true that a human being can become very, very powerful. And I think that for centuries, that has been the game. How do we keep a lid on this thing? How do we keep people held down? How do we ensure the medicine is terrible, the food, the air quality, the schooling? How do we ensure that these people do not come into their inheritance and begin to gain what is possible? I think that's a major part of the game. With that, that's hour one of episode 521. And uh, Jason and I are covering the mystery of Babylon. We will come back in hour two. There's a heck of a lot more to lay down. Jason, would you estimate that most of what we covered there was the Masonic point of view? Uh, I would say that that's pretty accurate. Yeah, but it kind of extends into other things as well. And this came through Cooper somehow? Yes. Yes, most definitely. All right, there it is. We're going to wrap up, take a few minutes, come back for hour two. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full two-hour episode. Members get access to the forums, to all comments under each episode, and to the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon that Jason created around my half a decade plus of telescope work. With that, I'd like to wish each and every one of you a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era, and I hope to see you on the other side logged in at the website. There it is, man. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing. Come.